Welcome to NGA Notable Lectures, a podcast offering a deeper understanding of all things artistic. Johannes Vermeer, the unprecedented exhibition that featured 21 of the existing 35 works known to have been painted by the Dutch artist, was on view from November 12, 1995 through February 11, 1996 at the National Gallery of Art. It was drawn from museums and private collections in Europe and the United States. In the winter of 1995-96, the gallery was closed during federal government shutdowns and a blizzard, which severely affected public access to the exhibition. As a result, the Vermeer exhibition was inaccessible for 19 days of its run at the gallery. After 10 days of the second government furlough on December 27th, the exhibition was reopened using private funds. The rest of the gallery remained closed to the public. In this presentation, held on November 15, 2015, to celebrate the 20th anniversary, Arthur K. Wheelock, Jr. shares the amazing journey behind the scenes to bring this exhibition to the public. Welcome, everybody. Arthur Wheelock here. And I think we have a wonderful story to tell you. And, and part of the story, my role at this first phase is to, to tell you a little bit about how this came about. The, the, all exhibitions, I mean, as I mentioned, we have many exhibitions here at the gallery. And they, every one of them involves all sorts of intricate um, periods of diplomacy and um, issues of uh, will you get those loans or not, and what kind of a concept will you create for a show. Um, they all have their own separate challenges. Um, Vermeer had more challenges than I think any I've encountered, and um, my guess is probably more than any other curators encountered. But anyhow, it's, it's, it was an amazing journey, because as uh, that little clip from Charlie Rose mentioned, I mean, these paintings, uh, they're not that many Vermeer paintings. They're only about 35. And, and they, yet each has such a distinctive character that you do remember it. They, once you see a Vermeer, it gets inside you. It sort of holds you tight. And you never forget it. And you, you know, if, if, if it's the woman in blue that we have up here in the upper right that's now on loan from the Rijksmuseum, or the music lesson from the Queen's collection, the little street, the, the girl with the pearl earring, or even Christ in the House of Mary and Martha, early painting of a mirror, very different, and so historical paintings. Each of them holds you tight. And so forever, ever, I mean, ever since the mid-19th century, that's probably not forever, but anyhow, since the mid-19th century, when Tory Bourget first came to love Vermeer and started this pilgrimage to see all the Vermeers. I have known people through all my life who have come up to me and said, I have been making this pilgrimage. And so one of the wonderful things about this show is that we could bring, try to bring together these works that people have gone all over the world to try to, to see and have this amazing experience to see what it was like to do a monographic show on Vermeer. Of course, nobody ever thought you could do a Vermeer show. And I think that was one of the, the fascinating psychological challenges that we faced. It's just, you're not gonna do a Vermeer show. This just doesn't happen. Um, and so there was a, a, a general reluctance out there. Um, and it's sort of hard to, to you know, go back to that moment when, when the first ideas came about. Now, we were very fortunate that um, we could do it. So, so, of course, it's a monographic show. That's a simple thing on one hand. You're just trying to find works by one artist. 
and it's uh, and it's and it's a limited number of works, only 35. So that's easy as well, except for the fact that you need a, a certain number of works in order to have a show, and that was initially the challenge. And so, fortunately, we were able to partner with a wonderful museum in The Hague, the Moritz House. And this is the National Gallery in the upper left, and that's the Moritz House on the right. The Moritz House exhibition areas almost could fit into this one room. It's, that's a little bit overstatement. It's a beautiful house, it's a beautiful 17th century home, but it's a small institution. The National Gallery is a big place. The United States of America is a big place. The Netherlands is a small place. So there are all these sort of interesting dynamics that one gets in working of partnership with a large institution of the United States of America and a small institution in a small country. How do you work together so you feel like you are partners on equal levels? This is an interesting dynamic that one has to deal with. And basically, what I'm going to talk about now is politics for the next uh, half an hour. How do you give the sense of equal weight and equal importance and, and, and value added to everything you give to, uh, to the, the program? It, it's always a kind of a fascinating thing to, 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 to recognize that you have to bend over backwards as a big place to be sure that the other institutions always feel that they are having true voice. Now, fortunately, we had very good relationships with the Moritz House. We had a wonderful show of paintings in the Moritz House in 1982, which was when the Queen came and this time, the first time to the, to the United States for the opening of that show. Um, and then in the mid-'80s, the director of the Moritz House, Hans Hutink, came to Washington because he wanted to borrow paintings for an exhibition they were going to do at the Moritz House on Dutch paintings from American collections. And we had, um, we were very generous. We have great Dutch paintings that we wanted to share and show those and celebrate that collection. And so we had a dinner with Roger Mandel, who was the deputy director at that point, and myself and Hans Sutink, and talking about this exhibition they were going to do in the early 90s. And at that dinner in an Indian restaurant, Roger um, said the unspeakable, or asked the unspeakable, do you think we could do a Vermeer show? And we all thought and said, whoa, you know? If it's ever going to happen, maybe it's our two institutions can, can really make it happen because despite the differences in size, um, we have a great core collection between us. So we at the National Gallery have four paintings that are Vermeer, or sort of Vermeer. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that was another issue. We won't get into that one right now. We have four paintings. Okay. Um, and the Moritz House. So we had the girl with the red hat, the girl with the flute, the, the, the lady in yellow reading, writing a letter, and the beautiful uh, woman with the balance. So the core works, at least the top, bottom two are core. The top two, the small little panels, they are distinctive in Vermeer's work. And I should just, you know, why people, some people were laughing, maybe others weren't, but the, uh, no, I don't. I, can't, I only have half an hour. I can't get into that. <laughs> yeah, four paintings. Okay, the Moritz House has three. Um, they have a great view of Delft. They have the girl with the pearl earring, and they have an early painting of Diana and her maidens. Together, that is seven paintings out of an herb of 35. So actually, that makes a great core. 
and then we should be able to, to get the works together that we need. Well, except for the challenges that we had immediately uh, to face. And the, one of the challenges was that there are three great paintings in the Frick. They cannot be lent. There are five paintings at the Met, but two of them, including the uh, woman asleep, cannot be lent, according to the, the terms of the, the bequest. Um, so that's five right off the bat. You have a beautiful painting formerly in the, in the garden museum, stolen. You're not going to get that. <laughs> and then the painting in Dublin, stolen. You're not going to get that. It didn't seem. So that's five. That's seven. You have a painting in um, Kenwood, beautiful woman on the guitar. Stolen, but it had been returned, but it was damaged, and it had never been lined. It was conservation, we could not get that. You had the great allegory of faith in Vienna. A, pro a painting that was very problematic. It had been here in that 1948 show that Faya mentioned, but it had been a painting that had been owned by Hitler and had been taken from the Chernin family, and there are all these legal things going on that the, the, the people in Vienna did not want to lend this at all for fear that it should have come to America, there'd be lawsuits that would never go back. And besides that, there are conservation issues. There was a fear that this painting was so fragile after having made that trip to America that it would lose paint if it ever traveled again. And because of the character of the, cons the conservation issues and the approach to conservation that was being undertaken in Vienna, they could not fix it. If the painting were in the National Gallery and we could use our conservation methods, we could have fixed it. But because they had different philosophies of conservation, different materials, they couldn't. I've lost track, but anyhow, we're down to something like 26 possible paintings. And how many do you have to have to have a show? So I was kept counting, you know, what could we possibly, you know, what can we do? What, what can I promise? 18 maybe. That's my, my hope. So we could get 18. I thought I could persuade the gallery that we could do a show with 18. So that was, my, that was what I told people, you know, in hopes for the best. Because there are lots of issues that one has to deal with even when you have institutions that are, in fact, can lend and are very agreeable to lending. Moritz House, we have a deal that we're gonna try to work on this with Hans Sutink. This is 86 or so, 87. 86. Hans Hutink then retires in 89. A new director, um, a search goes on, the new director, Fritz Dupark, who's an old friend of mine, becomes the director in 91. But there's nothing we can do about this show, really, between 89 and 91 because they're, they're, Fritz wants to sort of take it on his, as his own. He doesn't want a sort of a continuation of a Hans Hutink project. So it has to be sort of start again kind of a thing. In the meantime, I am trying to sort of quietly continue this 
and I'll get back to that a little bit later. But at the point, in fact, point of fact, there was a period of just with our collaboration with the Martin's House that slowed down because of this change of director. So there's a lot of interesting internal politics and museums here, and there's lots of international politics, sort of inter intertwining of the various elements. But anyhow, it, crucial to the exhibition is the view of Delft, one of the great treasures, a masterpiece in Vermeer's work, um, unique in his oeuvre, the large city of the Delft, where he was born and raised and worked his entire life, uh, stunning in, in every possible way. Without this painting, we cannot do the show. As far as I'm concerned, could not do the show without this painting. So after, a year after Fritz becomes director, he says, well, we got a problem. In the 1940s or 50s, 50s, I think it was, the former restorer at the Moritz House, whose name was Tras, restored this painting. And when he restored the painting, he put shellac on it rather than varnish. That seemed to have been a, a, an approach they did. That, and the problem is that shellac shrinks when it dries. And what they had all concluded is that that shellac had pulled the paint off of the surface of the, and it was, it had created such weaknesses that it could should never travel. Oh man, you know, <laughs> that was not good news. So we were trying to figure out what we could do about that. What, and then the conservation lab at the Mars House had been closed because of, because of issues there in The Hague, and there was no lab that they could really study this at all. But this was the story. This was firmly embedded in the, in the mythologies of the Mars House. So we had finally called together a consortium of art historians and conservators to The Hague to study the view of Delft and, and the girl, the pearl earring. And there, here we are, um, so that's me from the back. That's Hubert von Sonnenberg, one of the great restorers of the world. It's Egbert Havakant Begemann. It's Ernst van der Vetering, who's now primarily known for his Rembrandt research. There's Ben Brose, who was one of the collaborators on the catalog. Um, Fritz Duparc and other, I cannot tell you who those are actually, but I'm sorry. But anyhow, a group of about 15 or maybe 10 of art historians and conservators to assess the situation with these two paintings to see if they could travel or not. Well, at a certain point, one of the restorers there said, well, you know, let's put a little solvent on here and see what happens. <laughs> and we did, right there in front of us. And sure enough, it wasn't shellac, it was varnish. There was no problem. I mean, <sighs> this is how decisions are sometimes made, you know, it's just, so anyhow. That meant, in fact, the, the, the Mars House then fully embraced the exhibition, once again, fully embarked on it. We could start, they did public restorations of these paintings um, behind glass, the restorers were there, um, so that they were able to restore both the, the girl with the pearl earring and the view of Delft. Um, they were thrilled with it. Actually, that gave the Mars House a wonderful sort of publicity um, think that they were storing these in public, and it was a very dramatic time. And at the same time that they were restoring their paintings, we were restoring ours. So David Bull, um, our the four premieres here, uh, under all went restoration. This is the the woman of the balance shown before and after, and you can see the incredible change of color. 
And I'm not going to get into this today just because of um, just but basically to tell you what a difference it did getting ready for the show. Um, but one of the amazing things in this, if you notice that um, the frame around the, so the woman is standing in front of a painting of the Last Judgment. And around the painting is a, uh, it was a black frame originally. And then during the restoration, we figured out that in fact, there were gold bands on that frame. So this painting, um, with this beautiful light that comes down past the window, catches the gold and pearl of the, uh, on the jewelry box and is brought up by the arm and then goes to a very serene head and then it just pulled back up by the bands of gold on the frame. The painting is totally transformed from that experience. And that was an amazing thing for our long-term effects of the gallery's paintings. The four paintings that were restored, each of them came alive in new ways. And in each of those works, we also were fortunate to have funding from the gallery circle to put 17th century Dutch frames on them. So they, you know, they have a wonderful presence through the Dutch frames and through the restorations that were done at that time. But the gallery's restorations were only that the restorations we were doing in Marantz House inspired other museums to restore their paintings as well, including the Queen's, uh, Queen's Collection and Edinburgh. So that was going on, and then we could really go and speak to other collections about what you uh, might want. And so this was, a, this was fascinating. The, the Rijksmuseum were very collegial in, in supportive in the um, efforts to do a Vermeer show. I've got to say they were great. But I knew from the start that they would, they have four Vermeers and they would only lend two to America. They didn't want to lend all four. They would lend, eventually they lend all four to the Marts. I was figuring either in the small country, just right down the street, we should lend them there. So they did lend four to the Marts house. But I had to make choices, and this was a kind of interesting challenge. What, so in, a, in framing a concept for the show, what choices, what paintings do you choose? If you've got to choose between The Milkmaid, one of the most famous paintings ever, and The Little Street, one of the most famous paintings ever, <laughs> what do you do? It is really tough, you know. So then you sort of think broadly Okay, what makes sense? What makes sense? And then eventually, I, although I hated to say no to the, to the milkmaid, it seemed that it made more sense to put the little street here, which I painting I love dearly, together with the view of Delft, that there would be the two exterior views that would make a context for, the, for each of them. So that was the choice that I made there. Um, and likewise, I had another choice with the four paintings. So do you want the, the love letter in this extraordinary, fascinating interior space? Or do you want this lady? It's only one lady, after all. <laughs> but my god, what a lady. But it's, uh, so what I really wanted to do, above everything else practically in that show, was to get these beautiful ladies in the mid-1660s the woman reading the letter that we are now blessed to have back at the National Gallery, this is the one I mentioned, it's up there in the cabinet galleries right now, have her together with a beautiful painting from the Met, the woman at the, with a water pitcher at the window, so that we could have a room, which we were able to do with our woman of the balance up here, the Met painting, 
the Rijksmuseum painting and the beautiful painting from Berlin of the woman standing uh, with a pearl necklace around her neck. So we would have these four single women, and in that same room we also had a comparable work from the same period, the music lesson from the Queen's collection. And it was such an incredible experience to be in there, to see this quiet and serenity of these very beautiful figures as they stood reflecting on um, various activities by themselves or with a, with a, with a singular partner. Same with the, the Met. So the Met has five paintings. Two of them can't be lent. They have three that could be lent. So I wanted to have the lady standing there at the, with a water pitcher. Um, the other two paintings that are in the collection are the woman with uh, the, the lute, which is a very beautiful painting, but not in the greatest condition. And this painting, which I don't love at all, but it's unique in Vermeer's work. It's the allegory of faith. And that seemed that we had to have that in the show as a sort of distinctive other aspect that showed relig his religious beliefs. Vermeer was Catholic. And, and that aspect of the show then could be demonstrated very beautifully in this late and very uh, allegorical, expressly allegorical painting. So this was a unique thing in Vermeer's work, like the view of Delft. So it's, that seemed to me a choice that we should make. So I asked for two paintings for the Met, the, uh, the Allegory of Faith and the Woman in the Window. Unfortunately, the Met also was very cooperative and, and happily lent, well, happily, they lent the, 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 <laughs> the stewards. <laughs> However, life is not always as simple as that. And so there are more than a couple complicated stories that went on for some time. I just want to show two of them because I think they are, just to give you some idea of what the kind of in, internal politics that, but this, um, these paintings are from the Louvre, the lace maker and the astronomer. And they're both very beautiful paintings, very important. Um, and I was very scared to go to Louvre. The Louvre is traditionally not a very receptive to loan requests. And at that point, the curator of Dutch art um, was arguably one of the most unpleasant people I ever had to work with. <laughs> for lots of reasons, but anyway, um, for lots of reasons. But one of the things he does not like to do is lend. And that was clear. He is not, he is very pro-French, loves France, which we all love France. But he uh, hated America, basically. Um, and um, didn't like Americans either. So uh, anyhow, I did my, uh, steal myself for this meeting. I was not at all happy to go do this, but I had to because, and actually this I did in the late 90s, this eight, late 80s, before uh, Fritz even became director. And so I went to see Monsieur, and I think I should not probably say his name out in public, but anyhow, Monsieur, and um, said, would you, uh, what would you think about the idea of, <clears throat> um, would you think of how, would, uh, you know, <laughs> and uh, we're thinking about doing a Vermeer show, and I said, oh, Vermeer, quite oh, a problem, who cares? He, he hated Vermeer. A Frenchman who hated Vermeer, it's unbelievable. Anyhow, I walked out, I said, oh, geez, almighty, that was amazing. And I went home and got a glass, I went back to the hotel and got a glass of wine, and I said, I just don't believe that just happened. Oh, yeah. So, like an idiot, 
I went back to Louvre the next day, and, and uh, I was walking up to the documentation where you do the research, and I, on the stairways, I met Pierre Rosenberg, and Pierre Rosenberg is, uh, so my colleague that I spoke to the previous day was a curator, and Pierre Rosenberg is a chief curator, and in the Louvre, it's, the chief curator has all the power, not the curators, not the director, chief curator. And so Pierre Rosenberg says to me, well, I understand you've been talking about loan requests. And I said, oh, yes, well, I would talk to Monsieur, and my good friend. <laughs> and he says, well, of course you can have both premieres as long as we have the show. <laughs> and as long as we don't have the show, you don't have any premieres. <laughs> and so this is hardball negotiation, you say. And so this is the late 80s. And this is where we stay for the longest time, not moving on this. There's no way we can have three venues for this show. It's not going to happen. So it goes on. He comes to town. Rusty speaks to him. Alan Shestak speaks to him. I speak to him again. He seems to relent a bit about lending one to Washington and one to The Hague. And then the worst of all things happens. In 1994, he becomes the director. <laughs> so he has no authority anymore. <laughs> so the new chief curator, Jean-Pierre Cousin, is the person who has to make his first decision in this new position is to lend a Vermeer or not. And somehow or other, um, we managed to, to get one premiere. So we got the lace maker, which we were very thrilled to have. Um, another, even more complicated situation. Frankfurt is even less willing to lend paintings in the Louvre. <laughs> and that part of the problem is that they have a restriction, it's kind of like the Frick, where you cannot lend because in the 19th century, it seemed like the Board of Trustees, every painting that they kind of liked, uh, they thought would hang more happily in their own home than on the walls of the museum. So they got a restriction against lending anything. And that was really part of their own personal history. So there was a long restriction. Um, and I knew that that was the situation. And, they were, and, I, and I knew that it was a very complicated world there, um, just from you know, history of my having been in the field a bit. Um, so I had to figure out what would be a tactic to get to show the Frankfurt, people in Frankfurt, that we love them dearly, and that we cared about them, and that we hoped that they would think kindly upon us with this request. So what I ended up doing was agreeing to lend, which I probably would not normally do, um, Our Lady, um, to a museum of the Kunsthalle in Frankfurt that was doing an exhibition on women writing, uh, uh, not just women, letter writing. And so we lent the Vermeer to the uh, Kunsthalle in, in Frankfurt, and that was around 91, 92, 90, and so while we were, I was undertaking this negotiations with the museum in Frankfurt. That happened to be a great thing, I think, because uh, Sabina Schulze, who was a curator there, became my eyes and ears inside the, the Stadel, which is the museum that had the Vermeer. And so um, I was able to follow the saga that was going on. And what had happened is that just before we started negotiations, the director of the museum 
was fired. And then they had, and so my, my, the curator there was a very nice guy, Michael Maxirad. He was a good friend of mine. But um, in the hierarchy of German museums, there's, there's, you only do certain things that you're allowed to do in that hierarchy. So there are some things, and Michael is very clear that where he belonged in the hierarchy, he was not about to go outside that hierarchy. But um, anyhow, what happened is that the museum director had been fired. They hired an interim director. He left immediately for some reason. They rehired the fired director. <laughs> so it's a lot of uh, uncertainty in that museum, should I say. Um, and this, because the, they, they, even though they, they rehired the, the fired director, the board of trustees had no confidence in him. So they were not about to listen to him. Besides, he didn't make any decisions anyhow. The, the only one who made a decision was Mr. Ops. And Mr. Ops was the president of the Board of Trustees. Hence, there was nobody who would speak to Mr. Ops. Certainly not Michael McGerard, certainly not the fired, rehired interim director. The only way for me to get to Mr. Ops who would make that decision was to go outside the museum. And so I was trying to find him. This takes time. You see, these things, you know, trying to find who would be a German person that would be a friend of Mr. Ops that would be able to speak to him. I finally found the guy, and Mr. Ops died. <laughs> so then they hired a new board. And they hired a new director, but the new director couldn't come. I, this is true. This is a true life story, believe me. The new director couldn't come until the old, fired, rehired interim director left. But nobody had told him he had to leave. <laughs> so finally, it was in 1994, in the fall of 1994, that the new director comes. And it was just like at the, at the, at the, uh, uh, at the Louvre. His first decision is to lend a Vermeer to America of an institution that never lends anything. So he did it. I mean, it was, but it was really amazing. I mean, but these things happened so, I mean, this is, these are two extremes, but there's the kind of things that happen at all sorts of wonderful, strange times. Anyhow, we had success. And one of the amazing unexpected successes is that they, the stolen Vermeer was recovered from Dublin. And not only was it recovered, but the museum in Dublin restored the painting and lent it to our show even before it hung in Dublin. The willingness of people at a certain point to get on and make this happen was really incredible. Same with the National Gallery in London. The National Gallery in London, we had us only one. As a curator, I don't, I don't think it's right to ask for both. If they only get two vermeers to ask for both, so I asked for one, asked the woman standing. And they said to me, well, if you get enough, we'll consider lending both, which they did. So in the end, they offered to lend two. And then we are really right at the end. This painting, the one from Frankfurt, only that approval came after the end, after the, the catalog had already been started. So it was really late in, very late, after the catalog was already in, you know, everything's done on the catalog. They didn't know they had to get an export license, and so they didn't get that export license until Friday before the opening of the show, which was on. 
That arrived on somehow on Monday. Um, and then this painting, the beautiful painting from, from Berlin, the director actually brought the painting. It arrived here the night after the press that we, it was hung just the day of the, uh, after the press event, you know, at the very end. It was really that down to the last minute to have this where we finally, at that night, got our 21 paintings. And then I was able to sort of finally walk through the show quietly by myself and have this sense, oh my God, after eight years, after eight years, these things have all made it here. This is not how most of you probably saw the show. Um, <laughs> It was very spare, we had lots of space, we didn't have any text next to any painting. If you wanna read about that sucker, you go off to another wall and read about it there. You stand in front of that painting and you look at it. Um, we did do a wonderful room of about the scholarly side, the Vermeer and optics and the kind of the, the whole perspective and camera obscure uh, this discussion was there, which was done, beautifully done with our design department with Mike, Mark Lighthouser and, and Gil Ravenel was very important in, in bringing that together. And I've got to say right now, you know, this whole institution was amazing in every way. The editor's office, the art handlers, the guards, I mean, this, uh, the, the, the director, I mean, it just was such an, all hands on deck kind of let's make this thing happen that nobody ever thought it could. We had an incredible opening dinner. Um, the Queen came um, and this is um, the curator um, here talking to the, to the Queen and the trustees um, at the time of the opening which was one of the most festive things with all the Dutch press. I mean it was a big big event. We opened to um, the following Sunday, um, which was with so much joy, and then two days later, government shut down. <laughs> After eight years. <laughs> the, one of the things I was confronted with early on, like day three um, of the exhibition, that's one day after it was closed, is um, a phone call from my colleague at the Rijksmuseum uh, could not believe what he just heard. Uh, so we, tell me this, we, we've been talking about this for how many years and we agree to lend our great treasures to you and now you're telling me it's locked up and nobody can see it? <laughs> so, in fact, that was a wake-up call for me. He was a good friend of mine, and he was ready to take his paintings home. So I got on the phone and dealt with my colleagues from around the world, trying to explain, yes, they're safe. The electricity, you know, the heat's on. Is there, there, we don't know how long this is going to last, but um, anyhow, in the end, everybody kept their paintings here, so nobody took them home. But that was, that was a real threat. That was actually a very real threat. And um, so uh, that was one thing I just, I mean, there were lots of stories that went on about experiences I had during that um, time. But that was one thing I wanted to just, two things. One, to say that, that it does make a difference to um, the world, what we have here, and it also requires such goodwill from colleagues from around the world that the, uh, and when the U.S. is viewed positively in the world, it makes my job a whole lot easier. 
Um, there are people much more willing to lend to the United States when the United States is somehow a positive force and is much less willing when there are very negative feelings about it. I mean, it's just amazing to see those things um, happen. Um, so we passed through that whole phase of the exhibition that we've been talking about, but I just want to, there is an afterlife that, that I just want to briefly mention, and that is a, a very unusual, uh, I think, to, to see an afterlife of this. And the numbers of books, movies, operas, written about Vermeer, subsequent to this exhibition. I mean, this is just a, a smattering of a few of the novels. Books of poems, I mean, it's just, and, uh, I actually, one of the things I should quickly say is that in, during this period, I received hundreds upon hundreds of letters um, from people saying, uh, to a certain extent, thank you, but more often, um, I mean, sometimes saying congratulations, but more often, thank you. It is somehow being there, seeing these paintings has made such a difference in my life. I mean, that was a very powerful thing that, um, I keep with me, and then and poems and, and art, works of art that people sent just to kind of show their appreciation. It was really, I never had that kind of reaction before. But anyhow, then the outside world of these, uh, these types of books and novels, children's books, um, adult books, mystery books of all types, but the scholarly impact as well. So over here is the catalog for the show, which was sold eventually 300,000 after the initial print run of 15,000. 75% um, of the visitors to the National Gallery during the course of the Vermeer show bought a book. It's un unheard of percentages. Um, we're usually in 2 to 3% of people coming to an exhibition. But we didn't have catalogs, so many, they bought another book. They just had to buy a book. But anyhow. Um, so we did a, a CASVA study, a study day. Um, there are books about Vermeer and Van Leeuwenhoek. We have a whole series of exhibitions. The geographer and astronomer were, were now came together in Frankfurt at a certain point. Vermeer and the Delft School, big show at the Met. A, a focus exhibition in Vienna of this painting after a whole big fat book just on this painting. Now, so I want, to, I want to continue the story of this painting, which we heard could not be lent. That was the conservator's view um, that, uh, in Vienna. They could not do it. At the same time, however, because of, there was a, the Marx House went uh, sort of politically um, encouraged the loan. The, in, in Vienna, there's a, there are various museums, as you well know, and there is a general director over all these museums. And the general director agreed that this painting should be lent to the show, despite the, the reservations of the conservator and the, and the museum personnel of the Kunststurch Museum. But I got a letter from the director, who is a good friend of mine, and just said, look, this is a problem. I don't think it should be lent. So David Bull and I, went to Vienna to look at this painting in the lab, under the microscope, um, with the conservator there. He explained the situation. And we, in fact, the paint was sitting on top of air in places. There were these, these uh, sort of pockets of air. And, and they could not restore, as I mentioned, could not restore it there. So in the end, I decided, well, this painting should not be lent. He was absolutely right. So. I ended up writing a letter to the museum saying, thank you for agreeing to lend this, but we no longer request to have this painting in the show. 
There's something I feel very good about. I mean, in terms of, uh, and I think the gallery s supported that decision entirely. But what I want to go back to the collegiality of people, of these colleagues around the world, because some years later they did figure out how to restore that painting. And when they restored it, and successfully, I got a call from the director saying, we are so grateful for what you did during the Vermeer show time that we would like to send this painting to Washington um, as, so it can finally come to, to be with you and your, and your visitors. So you may remember we had a special exhibition focused on this, ex, on this painting. So that was a kind of an aftermath, a kind of a sort of ongoing um, the, the sharing of this collegiality and sort of, uh, which is part of, in fact, the reason we have the woman in blue here right now. Is that one interesting phenomenon that, in terms of ongoing research on this painting? Um, the Saint Praxedus was in the show. It's a painting that is early at the same time as the Diana from the Moritz House. This painting is a painting that I was convinced was by Vermeer, but um, there were about three other people in the world convinced with me. Um, <laughs> a lot of unconvinced art historians out there, and it has been a matter of big dispute ever since the Vermeer show. Just last year, the painting was about to be restored, and one of the controversies that came up was whether the lead white that was used in this painting was Dutch lead white or was Italian lead white, because this painting doesn't look like a Vermeer, the St. Proxidius, because in fact it's a copy of an Italian painting. So it is basically copied from a painting by an artist by the name of Ficarelli. In any event, so many people thought, oh, it must be another painting by Ficarelli. Well, for a lot of reasons, I didn't think that was the case. And so they did testing of the lead white. Yet again, we had done it here at the National Gallery years ago. So I said, no, no, send it to the Rijksmuseum. There's a Dutch museum. If there's any, you know, we don't want to be tainted with any kind of scholarly uh, scientific examination so that people won't believe what we say. The Rijksmuseum did the testing of a special group um, associated with the Rijksmuseum, and they found out that the lead white was Dutch, in fact, 100% Dutch, but not only was it Dutch, the lead white that was used in this came from the same pot that was used to paint the Diana. Um, so that is uh, very exciting. But this is an ongoing research here about techniques, materials. Um, the, the study, the, the, they think, they, they, people think they now know where the little street is. This is a big, exciting new thing that'll happen this fall. But the last thing, I just wanna leave you with this wonderful image that um, I think sums up so much of Vermeer. The irony of this whole phenomenon of the Vermeer show. The, you know, Vermeer is all about purity and calmness and peace and quiet and thinking and making you feel better about yourselves, who you are as a person. And the whole tensions that were going on that of the political situation and the, and the, and the blizzards and everything and the f pushing in line and getting there, it was an amazingly quiet show. Um, it was one of the most, with all those crowds, it was the most quiet experience that one could possibly imagine inside there. Um, but it was the sense of fragility of life that I think came, that made, it made it all part of this phenomenon. That the fragility of life that is so, things can be taken away from us so quickly, so easily, so out of our control. And, 
and 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 coming in front of a mirror somehow it takes away some of that anxiety. It gives you this feeling of peace and inner harmony that we all search for in our lives. Well, we fortunately have wonderful Vermeers here. They're fortunately, you can regenerate those feelings anytime you want um, upstairs in our galleries and for a while have also the woman in blue uh, visiting us from the Rijksmuseum. Thank you all for being here today. This has been a National Gallery of Art podcast.